Okay, we are working through the Apostles' Creed as a kind of framework as we think about what we believe and why that matters. And I think this is really important for us. Sometimes we just assume things, or sometimes we don't make the connection between what we believe and how then should we live our lives. And so we're using the Apostles' Creed as a kind of framework to do that. Up till now, we've been dealing with the vertical reality. Do you know what I mean when I say that? We've been dealing with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, this idea of the vertical reality. And now the creed changes a little bit, and we're dealing with the horizontal reality. Uh, how does this play out within our relationships? And for the horizontal reality, we start with the church. And the Apostles' Creed has a really simple statement about the church, and it goes like this. Anybody know it? We believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And that messes with the evangelical mind, doesn't it? And we'll get to that in just a minute. But three really important words, Holy Catholic Church. So let's just examine those briefly right off the top, because they're important, but often under, misunderstood. First, the church is holy. Is it? I mean, have you examined the church and the historical context of the church? Have you seen the scandals that have rocked the church over year after year after year? Uh, do you know the history of what's been done in the name of Jesus in this country and around the world that was very unholy? The church is holy? Is it really? And sometimes we make an excuse. We just say, well, they're just painting everyone with the same brush. It's only some branches of the church that are unholy. The rest of us are pure. We've done nothing wrong. But I think we have to own our sin as the church. We have to own up to the things and the mistakes we've done in the past, even if we didn't do it ourselves, because we bear the name and by association, sometimes we are guilty. So how can the church be called holy and yet be associated with scandal and unholy actions? How can we still be holy? Well, for me, it's kind of like this. Each and every one of us in this room, you, me, everybody in this community, everybody in the, around the world, we are all made in God's image, right? We understand that? That's, that's a, not only a Christian concept, that's a biblical concept, right? That's, that goes beyond Jesus, that goes back to the very beginning of Scripture. We are image bearers. We are made in the image of God. And that's why we value our children more than our pets. We hope. That's just in case you didn't get that order right. But we do value because we are image bearers in that sense. So there is value given to humanity as image bearers. But sometimes as image bearers, we do things that oppose God. We do things that go against that image. Now, that doesn't eradicate the image of God in us. It doesn't totally get rid of it. Suddenly, we don't lose God's image just because of our sin. It gets marred, but not lost, right? And I think in the same way, even though the church has scandal and some things have been done in the name of the church and name of Jesus that have been unholy, still the church at the core has been made holy because of Jesus. We find our holiness in Jesus. And that sense of the word holy is this that we are set apart for a purpose. The church is meant to be different, not different in a weird sense. I mean, I love the old King James 
uh, version, you're a peculiar people. Some of us are more peculiar than others, but we're meant to be a set-apart people. That's what holiness means, that we're set apart for a purpose. Sometimes we fail to reach that purpose, but it doesn't mean that we stop being set apart. It doesn't mean that we stop being holy. We carry that. This is what First Peter says. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Have you ever thought of yourself in that way in relation to the church, the congregation, that we're God's special possession? You ever had a special possession as a kid? Just how you treasured it, how you protected it, right? God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are holy. We are set apart for that purpose. Even if we don't always live up to it, we're still holy. The church is holy in that sense. It's kind of like seeing a baby with a very large head. And you say to the parents, he'll grow into it, right? And there's a sense in which that we need to grow up into the head, which is Jesus. Uh, the head's too big for the body. The head is, is, is incredible because Jesus is the head of the church. But we're all invited to grow into that, to grow up. Literally, that's what it says in the Bible, to grow up into the head, which is Christ. And so we've got a lot of growing to do. We know that. But we are still holy because Jesus has made us holy. He set us apart for a purpose the holy church. But then we learn in the Apostles' Creed that the church is Catholic. It is? I thought my mom left the Catholic church a while ago. How are we going back to it now? What does this mean? And as I mentioned, it really messes with the Baptists and the evangelicals. How can we have this word? And so sometimes if you read the Apostles' Creed in the Baptist church, they'll sub that word out with other words. We always try and make sure it's got a small c Catholic, right? So that we're being very intentional about what it means. But essentially, it just means what? Universal. There's a universal nature to the church, but universal doesn't quite capture it. Universal talks about the fact that the church is not just here, but there. So it talks about space. But it's Catholic in the sense of time as well, that it's the church for all ages and from all ages. So both space and time, we are part of the universal church. So even, I know when we were church planting and sometimes only 10 people showed up, the fact that there's only 10 doesn't diminish the size of the church, that we were part of this universal church, not only around the world, but throughout all time. That's what we read in Revelation chapter 7. He sees a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before, and before the throne and before the Lamb. That's the image of the church we need to get a hold of, that we're part of this worshiping community around the globe and throughout all time. So the church is not European or Middle Eastern or Chinese or whatever. Uh, the church does not belong to a particular group of people. In fact, the church is the universal church. It, it goes beyond that. I love the fact that in here, in this little space, because we're still renovating the sanctuary, in this little space, all day long, there is worship. After us, there's actually a group comes in, and I've mentioned this before, and it's Emmanuel Baptist, the Spanish congregation, and they come in and they worship here. And we actually have a, a group of Korean families that go downstairs, and they've been starting just to meet together 
uh, to, to get to know one another again and reconnect. And in the evening, we have Newgate, and that's a group, and there's a group of uh, Nigerians and Filipinos and Chinese, and they, they all come together here too, all in this space, all day long. People from all over the world are worshiping because we're part of the Catholic Church. We're part of this universal church. Isn't that cool? I, maybe it's just a pastor geeking out here a little bit, but <laughs> I just think that it's so awesome that this space is being used by people from all over the globe, and it reminds us that we don't get to control the church just because we're from a particular group of people. And so that's why the church is Catholic. So the church is holy. The church is universal. But the most misunderstood word of all in the sentence is church. I think we assume we know what it means, but it's probably the most misunderstood word in that whole sentence. It's interesting, if you go home and you want to Google this, if you've got some time, and look up uh, where the word church came from, you might be surprised and a little bit upset because the word church has weird origins. Um, some people would say, well, it just comes from uh, another language, which means house of God. And other people would say, well, no, actually, it comes from the word that means circle, and it refers to pagan worship. And you can go down all sorts of rabbit trails. There's a man by the name of Wycliffe. Some of you might have heard of him in the 1300s. He was one of the first to translate the Bible into the English language for the common folk. Uh, but he didn't know Greek. And so he translated it from Latin. And so he just brought in the old English word for church and put it in there. And we've kind of adopted it since then because it came from Latin. But Tyndale, and some of you may have heard of this character too, uh, he came a few hundred years after Wycliffe, and he knew Greek. And so he translated wherever we see the word church, he actually substituted the word congregation because it's closer to the Greek. The Greek word, and some of you may have heard it, ekklesia or ecclesia. Some of you have heard that word, right? And the word is not a religious word. The word is actually a very common word. The word is meaning to call people to assembly, to call a gathering with a purpose. And it's used in the New Testament, uh, wherever we see the word church, it's actually ecclesia, the calling together of a gathering of people. And it's actually really close to the Old Testament word kahal, which simply means assembly. It's just the gathering of people together. Why is that important to us? Why am I bringing that up and belaboring the point? Some people are saying, get to the point, preacher. Here's the point. The church, as we understand it, is always about the people, not the structure. The structure changes. I mean, people gather sometimes, as they do in the, the passage we're about to read, they gather in the temple courts. Sometimes they'll gather in homes. Sometimes they'll gather in rented space. Sometimes they'll gather in caves in secret. Sometimes we even gather online. <laughs> We gather in all kinds of ways, but this gathering, it's the people that really matter. Do you remember the old thing we used to do as kids? Some people with this whole steeple thing, you can do it right now if you like. And, uh, and it, we'd say to our, our kids or our parents would say to us, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors, thanks Audrey, and see all the people. It's completely wrong. Don't do it again to your children. <laughs> You're teaching them bad theology. There's a sense in which we could say this. 
Here's a cool building that I'm making with my hands and a giant tower on it. And when you open the doors, you see the church, which is kind of interesting, right? Because it's the people. That's what matters. That's why buildings can come and go and we can make changes and we're still okay because we are the people. Now, that doesn't mean that buildings are inconsequential. It's like saying our home doesn't matter. Our family can just live in a field. No, our home is kind of important. Our home is an expression of who we are. Our home provides things for us. And it's the same with a building. A building provides things for us and is also an expression of what we believe and an expression of who we are. I was reading a story of uh, First Nation um, Attawapiskat in Ontario. And a number of years ago, they had this old ancient church building and they decided they were going to renovate it and they got some money from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and they totally redid the stained glass in the church. What they did is they sent their own artists out to learn how to do stained glass so that all the stained glass in the building reflected their community. So when they talk about the creator, it was images that they understood. When they talk about the different stories, all of those things. So it was an expression of the community. Now, sadly, that church was burned down this year. That expression of the community was burned down. And the, the whole community mourned the loss. They didn't lose their faith. They didn't lose their sense of who they were in their community. But buildings, they are important. They, they're an expression, an extension of who we are. And so that's an important thing uh, to keep in mind. But at the core, the church is the people, right? At the very core, the church is the people. So what can we expect from the church, this holy Catholic church? What can we expect from this congregation? Uh, what do we expect when we show up? What do we do together that's so important and so relevant? Well, I'd like to read uh, scripture. And it's from Acts chapter 2 and verses 42 to 47. This is on the day of Pentecost, just after the Spirit has, has been poured out to all people. And uh, the believers are gathering together and they're starting to meet together in Solomon's porch is the place. Uh, it's just part of the temple. It was kind of an open area. And they met together in this kind of daily. But listen to what they did. Acts chapter 2 verses 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's a glimpse of the first congregation. Isn't that wonderful? People are saying, I want to join that because it sounds great. And it is great. And so we find in that opening verse, four activities that the church then and the congregation now need to hold on to as we move forward. First, the teaching of the apostles, right? That's what they gave themselves to. They didn't just make up stories. They didn't go looking in other places. They wanted to know about Jesus and the apostles were the witnesses to Christ. And we do the same today. It was a learning church back then and it's a learning church now. 
In some ways, every pastor, every teacher needs to be completely unoriginal. We're meant to be unoriginal. So if you're like, oh, I've heard it before. Yes, I hope you have. Because if you're hearing stuff for the very first time and you've been around the church for a long time, then it might be heresy, just saying. So we're meant to be unoriginal because we're meant to direct uh, our whole congregation to the teaching of the apostles. That's what we hold on to, and that's what the early congregation did. Second thing, the fellowship of believers. It was a sharing church. That word for fellowship is koinonia. You may have heard it before, but that idea, not just of the fellowship hall. We used to have a fellowship hall here in the church. This was sometimes the fellowship hall, and it's great to have a cup of coffee and, and uh, hang out for a bit, but fellowship, koinonia, goes beyond that. It's sharing life together. That's what the congregation is meant to do. So we weep with those who weep, and we rejoice with those who rejoice. We share life together. That's the fellowship of believers, and we need to hold on to that too. The third thing that they did, the breaking of bread. And sometimes this could just mean eating in each other's homes. But it also has the meaning of the memorial meal, the Lord's Supper, that they got together and they remembered what Jesus had done for them. And then the fourth thing, prayer. This was a praying church, a praying congregation. And we today need to be a praying congregation. So can we do those four things together? Can we give ourselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship with one another, like sharing life together, uh, the breaking of bread and prayer? If we can do that, then we're functioning as the church. We're functioning as the church. But what's missing? I want to challenge you just to think through. You don't have to yell it out, but what's missing from that description of the early church? What's that? Yes, a bit, the vertical. What's missing? I mean, we could say conflict's missing, and we can do it without that, but just read a couple more chapters and it comes. Or persecution's missing, and, and we can maybe do it without that, but read a few more chapters, it comes too. Some people might say, well, where's the choir? Where's the men's breakfast? Um, where's Sunday school? Where's the youth group? Those are all programs that are meant to embody those four things we already just said, Right? If we don't keep going back to those four things, we just become another social agency in town. No, we want to keep going back and no matter what we do. But there is one thing missing. The one thing that's missing in this early congregation is the outward focus mission of the church. And this is really important. They loved being together so much that they just wanted to stay there. You ever find that with your small group? You ever find that with a group of friends or maybe even a church? Newcomers come in, and it's like, oh, who are these people that are going to upset the apple cart? But that's what they were doing. And it sounds like a beautiful picture, but that's not what Jesus instructed them to do. Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? Jesus actually gave them very specific instructions, and it comes in the chapter before this one. He said, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, don't stay here. Go out. God is always sending. He's a sending God, constantly sending them out. And so what happened to this church? Did they stay together in Jerusalem? Actually, they didn't. Because persecution came, and God seems to have intentionally scattered them. They went out because they had to. 
And wherever they went out, back to their homes and their towns all throughout that area, they began to form little clusters of believers. And then when Paul and the others went on their missionary journeys, they would gather with them, give them greater teaching, and start to form witnessing communities in all those areas. God scattered them because God's focus is for the church to look out, not just to look in. Yeah, we need to take care of one another, and we need to enjoy being together, but the mission of the church is always an outward focus. In fact, the church, as you read through in the Acts of the Apostles, very quickly moves its location from Jerusalem to a town called, anybody know? Antioch. Antioch, which is now kind of in Turkey area. And Antioch was a completely unlikely place to start a church. It'd be like saying, I'm going to Las Vegas to start my church. And people are like, are you crazy? You can't thrive there. Antioch was that kind of place. Whatever happens in Antioch stays in Antioch. That was the saying that comes from the Romans at the time. And so Antioch was actually the first place where these followers of Jesus were called Christians. That's what we're told in the New Testament. And it thrived, but it thrived because the church was an outward-looking congregation and was fulfilling the mission of God to reach out to their neighbors. At first, it was said of the church that they took care of their own. We read that, right? But later on, as the church begins to go out, a Roman emperor says, these Christians, they not only take care of their own hungry, they take care of ours as well. He didn't like that because he was losing power over his people because of that. That's the church. Don't just take care of your own, but take care of others as well. So that's the challenge, I think, that comes to us uh, this morning as we read through this passage and see the unfolding of this holy Catholic congregation, <laughs> this universal church that's birthed here, but then spreads throughout the world. Well, what about this congregation? Uh, what about this group of people that calls Bonavista Baptist home? Well, as we gather and as we regather again, we're still going to learn together the teachings of the apostles. We're going to share life together. And, and Pastor Samuel is working on restarting our life groups, not only as a, a learning tool, but as a tool to share life together. Uh, we're going to worship and pray together, but let's never, ever forget that our core mission is this, to invite, encourage, and equip people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, we need to be outward focused. We need to look beyond the walls. Let's end with a quote. Kevin DeYoung, he says this, God does not send out his church to conquer. That's been the mistake of the church in the past so often. They thought they had to go out and conquer in Jesus' name. No, God does not send out his church to conquer. He sends us out in the name of the one who has already conquered. We only go because he reigns, and we go to serve in his name. That's the power of the church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have set us apart for your purposes. Father, forgive us for the times that we have failed to achieve those goals. Times when we've maybe become so inward focused that we've forgotten a world in need around us. Or even times when we, we've just done badly and we've brought uh, disrespect and disrepute to your name. Father, help us as we go forward to be the kind of people you're calling us to be. Help us to be holy. Help us to be like your son. 
make us each and every day more and more into that image so that we might bring glory and honor to your name. We pray in Jesus' name.